Good afternoon. Uh, buenas tardes. Boa tarde. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, the usual thanks. I'm very grateful to uh, Christian, to Svetlana, and to Francesca for inviting me here. It's always a pleasure to come to Oxford, and it is also a privilege. And thank you to all of you for deciding to share your Friday late afternoon or early evening with me. I don't know if it speaks high of myself or low of someone's social life, but that's... <laughs> I'll take it as a compliment, thank you. Um, let me tell you something about this presentation even before we kick off. Oh, I forgot something. I met Christian for the first time even before meeting him in person, because I went to Montevideo to the University of the Republic, where you were there just before me, and you were absolutely super popular. Okay. <laughs> so, and after that, we met on a number of occasions, and I can only reciprocate the kind words. I, I was very impressed with his work, and I still am. Um, the title of this presentation is Towards Modular Originalism in Latin America with a final question mark. Uh, I'm pretty convinced that this is the way we are going, but you know, they tell you when you speak to an audience, always put a question mark, it's, it's safer. <laughs> so that's why I did that. Um, and also for another reason, uh, this is very much work in progress, and I'm very happy to have a chance to present it in front of such a qualified and hopefully a very proactive audience. Um, this is the paper I'm preparing for the International Studies Association Conference in Toronto. And it's part of a broader project on new regionalisms organized by uh, a group based at the University of Leipzig in Germany. Let me tell you why I've decided to concentrate my attention on regionalism in Latin America, apart from the fact that it's a long time love of mine. Um, basically, this paper is the result of experience and fascination. Experience because I think that almost every time when I presented about Latin American regionalism, especially to audiences of non-experts, people struggle to understand the complexity of Latin American regionalism and the varieties of Latin American regionalism and how it is possible that so many different integration projects coexist. So this is an attempt to systematize a little bit the topic and try to discuss why it is in fact possible that so many different projects do coexist. But this is also the result of two fascinations. The first is my fascination with labels. I love labels. And I love especially to understand how you construct labels and then you place those labels on items. Uh, and when I mean I like to understand how you construct labels, I don't necessarily mean that I'm a constructivist. I like to place labels, but I don't like others to place labels on me. I'm sorry. This is a bit unilateral. Uh, and the second fascination is with theory. I quite like theory if it help me understand reality. But I don't quite like theory for the sake of it, just for the intellectual exercise. So while this paper is essentially theoretical, I would invite you to replace the word theory, if you so like, with the word concept. So it's more a question of thinking about regionalism and why several authors have understood Latin American regionalism in different ways. 
So my plan is quite simple. I have basically four points that I would like to discuss with you and share some ideas with you. The first one is an empirical overview on the situation of Latin American regionalism today in 2014. The second is a theoretical or conceptual mapping of Latin American regionalism today. Or, if you prefer, it's a modular theory of regionalism. What do I mean by modular theory? I mean that there are so many ways in which you can understand Latin American regionalism and try to make sense of it, that if you want, you can really use some of these explanations and combine them as you see fit. So you can come up with what I call a modular theory. But the third point is to offer yet another label, but one that I hope can encompass most of the others. And that is modular regionalism. And in this case, we're talking about the theory of modular regionalism. So we're not talking about the modular theory that you compose as you see fit, but we're talking about one hopefully cohesive and coherent theory to explain how so many projects aiming at regional units and regional integration can coexist in Latin America. And finally, I will try to draw some very tentative conclusions and offer you one further reflection that has tormented me for the last few months. So, if I want to capture the key features of Latin American regionalism today, where do I start? Well, I think we can start by observing what's, what's the story down there, what's the story on the ground. And my first concern is with the proliferation of projects claiming at least to pursue regional unity and regional integration in Latin America. Only in the last 10 years, especially between 2004 and 2012, we had four new projects. Top left is the ALBA. I think most of you will be familiar with all this scheme, but just let me uh, go for a brief overview for those of you who may be less familiar with this project. ALBA is the uh, Bolivarian Alliance for the Americas. It is essentially a Venezuelan initiative uh, proposed by the late president of Venezuela, Hugo Chavez. It includes Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, Nicaragua, Cuba, and a few small Caribbean islands. Then top right, you have UNASUR that was created in 2008. This is a Brazilian initiative that includes all the 12 countries in what we call South America, basically south of the Panama Canal. Bottom left, this is the community of Latin American and Caribbean state, CELAC. This is essentially a political organization that aims to give Latin America one single voice to speak with extra regional partners. So the aim is to have one voice for the 33 Latin American countries when these countries relate to international partners, be the EU, be China, be India. And then bottom right, we have the Pacific Alliance created in 2012, so it's the most recent addition to this landscape. Uh, the members are Mexico, Colombia, Peru and Chile. What they have in common? 
ashore on the Pacific, quite cordial relations with the United States, and the fact that they clearly stare at Asia for their development strategies. Now, if you think that it's quite interesting to have four projects that pursue the same objective, namely unity, so you can wonder, wow, four of them pursue unit. How can unite everybody? How can they do that? Well, don't be so content with yourself because there is more to come. Because those four projects actually add up to the existing project that already existed before 2002-2004 when ALBA gave rise to this new wave of regionalism in Latin America. So we have the Andean community, top left, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru and Bolivia with uh, I would say a quite erratic membership and also quite different policies depending on which historical period you look at. So the Indian community was created in the, in the 1960s following an economic development model based on closed market, trying to insulate countries to develop national industry. And then in the 1990s that uh, integration scheme evolved towards what we call open regionalism, that is a regionalism that promotes the elimination of trade barriers and prepare the region to compete globally and open itself to global competition worldwide. Top right, you have the Central American integration system that went through a similar fate, so it started with a quite close development model and then went on to a more open development model. Then bottom left we have LAIA, the Latin American Integration Association, which is more than anything else a secretariat trying to keep record of all other agreements of economic integration and cooperation. And then bottom right we have what is or what has been called the most successful attempt at integration so far in Latin America, that is Mercosur, the common market of the South between Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay, Paraguay and recently Venezuela joined uh, the group with a quite dubious legal process. So you see the, the picture is pretty complex and very very populated. But there is more to come, <laughs> because those schemes are in fact composed of Latin American countries only. But Latin American countries are not the only one in the Americas, where we also have the United States and Canada. So Latin American countries have engaged in attempts at hemispheric integration with the US and Canada too, or with the US only. So top left, we have the Organization of the American States, which is not an economic integration effort, it's more about politics, security, democracy. Then you have NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Area, between Canada, the United States and Mexico. Then you have another quite recent addition, that is the CAFTA-DR, the Central American Free Trade Area plus the Dominican Republic. Then, if you think that the situation is not complex enough, think that even the small Caribbean island have more than one project to unify. Bottom left, this is CARICOM, the Caribbean community, a legacy of the 1970s. 
And bottom right, you have the association of the Eastern Caribbean states, which is slightly more specific geographically and also thematically. In order not to confuse you any further, I'll stop here. There is more to say, <laughs> but I think I've bored you enough. But what is the summary of all this? The summary is that the first key characteristic we can observe empirically about Latin American regionalism is fragmentation or segmentation, if you want to be slightly more sophisticated. But there is a second characteristic, because variety and diversity are not necessarily negative, as we all know. But when you want to integrate or unify, and in fact you see divergence rather than convergence, then you start having some problems. So if I concentrate only on five projects here, these, these are the four most recent, the Pacific Alliance, UNASUR, ALBA, and CELAC, and arguably the most successful one, MERCOSUR. Why do I say that they, in fact, propose divergent projects? Well, I go back to history. I'm a kind of frustrated historian who had to lend his services to political science, because political science pays the bill at the end of the month, history, not so much. <laughs> but if you look at the history of Latin American thought about integration, three elements are constant. They were constant in the 1800s, and they are still there today. If you look at the work by Bolivar, Monteagudo, Alberti, Morazan, and other of the fathers of Latin American regionalism, you will see that the three key issues are how should Latin America relate to the United States? First point. Second, what should be the role of Brazil, the largest player in the region? And third, Latin America can pursue development only if it unites, the long story. So if we want to unite to develop, we need a common development model. So which common development model should Latin American countries adopt. These are the three key problems. And all these projects propose different <coughs> solutions. So how can you unify the region if any attempt, in fact, proposes different solutions for the three key problems? So if you take Mercosur, relation with the US, well, in general, I would say neutral, but with some tensions, especially with Argentina, but also Brazil has had a few uh, frictions with the US. The role of Brazil, um, I hope the Brazilian present here in the room will allow me to use the definition of reluctant leader. Brazil uses Mercosur as long as it is, um, in a way, subservient to Brazilian strategy. But Brazil is very reluctant to act as a paymaster and pay the bill to be a leader there. Um, the development model, well, in principle, open market, free economy, but in fact what you can observe in practice is an increasing level of protectionism. A different solution is suggested by ALBA, which has a quite hostile discourse towards the United States, and it's pretty ambivalent in practice. There are some frictions, but in fact there is also some cooperation. Brazil is not even a member of ALBA, and in fact ALBA is an alternative view for the development of the region and is alternative to the Brazilian view, among others. 
What is a development model? Once again, perhaps a little bit radical, but just to simplify things, it's barter. Okay, Venezuela puts the oil and the Cubans put the doctor. That's basically how it works. If you look at UNASUR, well, relation to the US is at least ambivalent. Why? Because ambivalent are the relations that its own member states have towards the United States. It's a Brazilian initiative, but in fact the control of the agenda is shared. So Brazil does not dictate or cannot really impose UNASUR's agenda. Development model? None as yet. There is an ambition to have one, but there is such diversity within the group that it was impossible to come up with a common development model, I mean in economic terms. If you look at the Pacific Alliance, again, yet another recipe. Very cordial relations with the United States, but in spite of that, in fact, this organization signaled that the focus of those countries is shifting away from the United States and going towards Asia. Brazil, again, is not a member. Brazil doesn't have access to the Pacific, and for the way things are now, I would say that in the medium term, Brazil may need access to the Pacific more than the Pacific country may need Brazil to support their initiative. And the development model is open economy and free trade. In this case, it's quite clear and not contested. If you take CELAC now, again, it's a political organization, it has relations with the European Union. There was a CELAC-EU summit last year. I will tell you more about it later on. There is now a CELAC-China forum, and there was last year a CELAC-India summit. So it's OK. Brazil has shown limited interest. Some of the Brazilian top diplomats even expressed some skepticism, but that, that was off the record. And development model, well, none so far, because this is not an economic organization, this is a political organization, but this point will become unavoidable at some point. Last year, well, no, two years ago, 2012, I was very lucky and I was seconded to the Chilean Foreign Ministry and worked with them to organize the first EU CELAC summit. And one of the problems was, whenever you have to draft a final declaration, you need to give it substance. And substance is basically either about common political concerns, the environment, for instance, or the economy. What do we do to develop better? What do we do to relaunch economic growth, for instance? Well, it was very difficult to find any single economic point that could be shared by all the 33 countries. I can even tell you a quite funny episode. There was a mention in the initial draft of the declaration <coughs> to include respect for the environment and the indigenous traditions when pursuing economic development. I'm not quite sure whether it was the Ecuadorians or the Bolivian. They sent in a fax just before we sent the draft declaration to Brussels to say that they did want a reference to the Pachamama. Otherwise, they wouldn't accept that. Now, you can imagine how, for instance, Mrs. Merkel would react by saying, well, OK, yes, to pursue the German development, I should respect the Pachamama. It's not that easy. It was not that easy to have her swallow that. But in the end, a different wording was found. 
So this is to say there is a clear divergence. So you not only have fragmentation, but you have divergence. I accept that the European Union is not and cannot and must not be a model for Latin American integration. But it could be an interesting reference. You could see what the Europeans did when they faced similar problems. And here is the point. Why we don't have divergence, but we do have convergence in Europe? Because historically, three key issues were resolved quite early in the development of the European Union and have remained stable. For instance, the relation with the United States, well, the Atlantic Alliance has never been questioned. One of my students said, what about when de Gaulle decided to quit NATO? Well, de Gaulle was very smart. He quit the military structure. He never quit the political structure of NATO. So, I mean, I don't think that that objection is in fact valid. About leadership, there is a clear consensus in, uh, in Europe on leadership. You may be optimistic and say there is a consensus on shared leadership, or you may be pessimistic and say there is a consensus on the fact that leadership is absent in Europe. My personal preference is for this asymmetric interdependence. There's no time to expand on that, but if you want to return on the concept during the Q&A, I would be happy to expand. And definitely, we do have a clear development model in Europe that is based on capitalism and free trade with more or less enthusiasm, but basically that's the model. And the fact that these three elements have remained constant, I feel actually can account for convergence in Europe and divergence somewhere else. Now, what do we do with all this? Now that the panorama, the landscape is hopefully a bit clearer, here comes the theoretical challenge. During the 1960s, uh, most observers, either academics or policy analysts, found relatively easy to define Latin American regionalism. They said, well, from an economic perspective, this is closed regionalism. Regionalism means we insulate the region from the rest of the world with high tariffs, okay, against trade, so we can develop infant industry locally. Closed regionalism. Some other authors prefer to call it old regionalism, give it different nuances of first wave, first generation. I mean, pick the definition you like, but basically the concept is that one. In the 1990s, it was also relatively easy to define Latin American regionalism. And it was labeled open regionalism. Why? Because the region, in fact, was an intermediate space between the national and the global level to force economic opening and competition globally. But why it was relatively easy to define those historical phases? Because there was not such a big variety. All the major integration scheme in Latin America followed those patterns, either closed regionalism in the 60s and 70s or open regionalism towards the late 1980s and most of all in the 90s. But today we have ALBA, UNASUR, CELAC, Pacific Alliance, Mercosur, plus all the others. So my theoretical question is, is it possible to capture this historical moment of variety, fragmentation, segmentation, divergence? Is it possible to find an explanation to this phenomenon? Not a specific one. I, I'm not interested in understanding why ALBA gives a specific 
solution and the Pacific Alliance another solution. I'm interested in understanding is there a cohesive explanation why there are so many solutions. So can we capture and explain at all that situation? Right. So that's the task ahead. And to begin with, let me identify what are the key characteristics that the literature has spotted about this historical phase of Latin American regionalism. The first is an attempt to overcome neoliberal approaches to integration, that is, approaches based on essentially free trade and open economies. Is it possible to find some other strategies to develop integration? Well, it seems that this is the case in Latin America. Many authors have decided to focus on this specific aspect. The other aspect is enfranchisement from the United States. There is a perceived decline or relative decline of the US's influence in Latin America. And in fact, because of this, Latin American countries are pushing this even further to acquire more autonomy and independence and set their own agenda freely. A third element is an attempt to strengthen the international position of Latin America. A fourth element, as you have already seen, is the intricacy of the picture. It's extremely complex and there is an inflation of regional integration, of supply of proposals. Some other authors, including yours truly, have stressed the gap between the narrative about Latin American regionalism and the practice on the ground. Let me give you an, an example to clarify this. Let's go back to Mercosur, Mercado Común del Sur, the common market of the South. Well, the common market of the South is not a common market. It has something called a regional parliament, Palasur, that has none of the competencies of a parliament. Okay, is it clear? So there is a difference between the rhetoric and the language we use, and the language we use help us framing the question, and the reality on the ground. So we talk one thing, but we observe a different one. And finally, it seems to me that there is more emphasis on cooperation than integration. Now, the problem here is what do we mean by these terms, by this definition? And I will return on this in my conclusion, because I think it is important to understand what we talk about. And cooperation is a much looser form of international interaction than integration, at least in its original meaning. Although you can argue, if you come from Latin America, everything is integration. Two undersecretaries meeting somewhere on the beach, it's a big step towards integration. But I would have some doubts about that. Now, to each of these six points, or for each of these six points, there is a corresponding theoretical approach picked up in the literature. So let me discuss now how different authors have actually picked up this concept and turned them into theoretical approaches to regionalism and how it is possible to combine these elements to come up with this idea of a modular theory. So you use theoretical module and you combine them as you see fit. Still with me? Yeah? Good.
Now, what does a Japanese film have to do with Latin American regionalism? Well, let me tell you, cinema is, my, is one of my three passions. The first one is my home football team. So never comment negatively about Udinese football team. <laughs> the second is mountaineering. But feel free to tell me that you prefer the seaside to the mountains. I will not take this as a personal offense. The third is cinema. And there is a very interesting link between cinema and political science or social science. That is the Rashomon effect. Rashomon is a film by Akira Kurosawa of 1950, if I'm not mistaken, yes. And the Rashomon effect, you can read this, is a term referring to different or contradictory interpretation of the same events by different persons. Okay? The story is a story of crime, murder and rape in medieval Japan. And four protagonists give a completely different account of the same events. Now, are those accounts false? No, not necessarily. The Rashomon effect focuses on the positive side. So each of these accounts tell you one particular aspect of the truth, provided that there is a truth. Okay? So it is possible to focus on a specific aspect of a phenomenon without losing on the others. You just place more emphasis. So all narratives, in a way, are equally credible. It's a personal choice, it's a normative choice to decide which one you prefer. But the focus here is really on the positive that each story can bring on our general understanding of regional integration. I believe that reality is complex, and to understand the complex reality you need complex explanation. I'm not happy with just one-fits-all kind of approach or very easy and simplified thing. So you remember six key features? Let's start with the first, the idea of overcoming this liberal approach to regionalism. And the first theoretical approach has in fact been labeled post-liberal regionalism. Pretty straight. The interesting thing is that this approach originates from the observation of Latin American reality. It's not a theory created somewhere and then applied to Latin America. But the authors who use this approach, like Jose Antonio Sanauja, Pedro Mota, Rios, and Andres Alvin, who was so kind to give me his office when I was in Buenos Aires, so I'm very grateful. And anyway, all these authors focused on the observation of Latin American reality in the last few years. And what do they say? They say, first of all, Latin Americans have a very or quite negative reading of the neoliberal experience with regionalism. They say the adoption of neoliberal policies domestically and regionally did not produce the expected goods. On the contrary, produced more inequality and more problems than they were supposed to resolve. There is therefore a rejection of the basic points of the Washington Consensus, especially rejection of the idea that the market can solve it all rejection of the idea that the state should be left on the one side and let market forces resolve the problems. So the new approach, in fact, is based on non-traditional economic integration. The idea is there is much more than the mere economic sphere. You can look at other sectors like health, education, security, 
Also, there is no desire and no design for supranationality, which is quite interesting because Latin Americans have always rejected it in practice, but in the discourse they have always aimed at that at some point. In this case, there is, I would say, convergence of the discourse and the practice. There is no desire for supranationality. It's just an intergovernmental exercise. <coughs> And certainly there is something good in there. A clear focus on the development agenda, focusing on a positive agenda. So what are the issues upon which everybody can agree so we can start tackling those? I think this approach brings us a lot of good ideas to understand regionalism, but I have a few reservations. The first is that all these authors focus on two integration schemes only, UNASUR and ALBA. And yes, it does work well, but what about all the others? If you take the Pacific Alliance, for instance, there is no rejection of liberalism. On the contrary, there is a call for a return to a liberal approach. Basically, Chile, Peru, Colombia, and Mexico said, okay, we have enough of all this blah, blah, Chavez and company. Let's focus on the economy. If you don't have a strong economy, you don't produce the resources to invest in social policy. So let's go back to the economy and let's go back to business. Second, here we talk a lot about the supposed return of the state. But in fact, Latin American regionalism has always been a top-down, strongly top-down exercise. So the state has never been out of the picture. Doesn't matter how the rhetoric about the abandonment of the state role in the economy or in integration was strong. That never happened in Latin America, in my view, at least as far as regionalism is concerned. And finally, as these authors, all of them acknowledge, this is only a possible approach to explain a quite complex picture. A kind of sub-approach is the post-hegemonic view of regionalism, the idea of enfranchisement from the United States and their influence. Where does this come from? In fact, this approach is mutated from Europe, or if you want, from the global level. In fact, Mario Tello, a Brussels-based academic, started discussing this idea of a post-hegemonic regionalism with reference to Europe, and he went back to the 1970s. Some of you who have taken classes in international history may remember all the debate about the decline of the US even during the Cold War in the 1970s, and the idea that the Soviet Union was emerging more and more. So the idea is not new. And if you look at the consequences of 9-11, of course, the limits of unipolarity, yes, you can have a quite good picture of why the decline of the US leaves more room to the others to decide how they run their own affairs. And of course, the focus on decentralization and globalism is crucial. Again, nothing new. Ian Clark said something like that in, back in 97, if, not, if I'm not mistaken. So you have two opposites kind of push. Fragmentation and integration. Globalization and localization. So these are complementary phenomena in a way. So Maya Tello identified in a way the context. 
And then this was applied first to Europe. What happens with Latin America? Two very charming Argentinian ladies decide to take this and apply it to Latin America. What do they say? They say, well, first of all, we can clearly see that most of the recent schemes of integration in Latin America are trying to go beyond US-led initiatives. Fair enough, that's okay. They also insist on the US own financial fragility, so the US cannot be a good model considering the current status of affairs. Which actually sets the picture for Latin American states to run and decide their own agenda. Again, fair enough. Here the emphasis is on political and social integration, on the displacement of this idea of US-led regional or global governance, and on the acknowledgement that a number of alternatives are available. Again, this is all good, but I have again a few reservations. Why? First of all, again the idea of the Pacific Alliance or the, or the integrated market of Latin America, Mercado Integrado Latinoamericano, which is the stock market merge of the Colombian, Peruvian and Chilean stock market. Well, the private sector say we want to do business. That's what we're interested in. We want to trade freely. We want more emphasis on finance. Like it or not, it's there. So this idea of political and social integration is okay, but it's not the only thing you can see in Latin America these days. Second, there is a lot of emphasis on this enfranchisement from the US, but don't forget that the US still is today the major partner of Latin America as a whole. China is growing, the EU is important, but still the US is number one, still today. Also, this emphasis on the idea that only post-hegemonic thinking may lead to emphasis on social policy is in fact absolutely ill-placed and ill-conceived both nationally and regionally. Typical example, Fox and Calderon, men of the right in Mexico, created, financed and pursued the program Oportunidades. That's just an example, I can give you more, say Colombia for instance. But also at the regional level, um, the Pacific Alliance, the most neoliberal scheme you can think of, has a very strong social dimension, focusing on education, and producing money to finance scholarship. This is not blah blah, there is money. Latin American students can apply to that money. Isn't it social? And still it's a neoliberal scheme. So I'm not really convinced by this post-hegemonic, which explains Alba very well, perhaps Unasur Salat, but misses something else. If you focus on strengthening international links, you can come up with what has been labeled third way regionalism. Again, it was born in Europe, looking at the EU as a global actor. And authors such as Schulz, uh, especially Luke van Langenhove in Bruges has worked a lot on this, uh, Soderbaum, they say, okay, it's fine, there is close regionalism, there is open regionalism, all new, whatever you want, but there is something specific to the EU. The EU is or can be considered a global actor, has a very significant international dimension and projection. My friend Thomas Moore decided to apply this idea 
to Latin America. And you say, what about if we take this picture of Latin American regionalism, and what I can see in this picture is that current schemes of Latin American integration more and more look at the external dimension. Yes, I would agree on that in principle. So certainly there is a stronger orientation on the external issues, there is an international projection. Most of these projects try to generate inter-regional or global agreements, but once again I have a few reservations. First of all, there is an underpinning decolonial or decolonialism behind this idea that Thomas suggests. And I cannot really see that apart from Alba, perhaps Salak, but even UNASU is not characterized by that. Certainly the Pacific Alliance is not. And if you look at the external projection, especially of the new schemes, UNASUR, ALBA, Pacific Alliance, or CELAC, with the exception of CELAC, there is no institutional inter-regional arrangement with the European Union, for instance. So where is this strong external projection? The Pacific Alliance has set as one of its key goals, in fact, to pursue the Asian market. But the Pacific Alliance has no juridical personality, so it cannot sign any agreement. It can only help members coordinate their action towards Asia. So where is this very strong external dimension? I'm not quite sure we're really getting there. And also, if you look at this idea that these schemes have stronger institutions, well, that is at least dubious as far as I can see. Now, a bit more quickly, because the thing is pretty obvious. If you look at the intricacy, uh, you may remember this idea of a spaghetti bowl. What is the idea? Well, you have a spaghetti bowl with all the spaghetti and the sauce, and unless you're Italian or very well trained, what happens? You try to roll the fork and get the spaghetti, and you will have tomato sauce all over your shirt. Okay, so you can create problems. The idea is that, in fact, we almost have an orgy of projects. That was the idea that Bhagwati suggested in, back in 95. And since then, these projects have proliferated even further. So there is this idea of a spaghetti bowl in Latin America with multiple and simultaneous participation. The idea, once again, is this will produce less than optimal results. What about this idea that regionalism has a very specific narrative which does not correspond to what you see in reality? Well, let me tell you, several authors have worked on that and on the value of words. Do words produce effects, in fact? Yes, they do. According to Schimmel Fanning, they definitely do. They produce legitimacy for a community. So if you always repeat the same discourse, actions are legitimate only if they conform to that discourse. This is the idea of a rhetorical regionalism, a regionalism that is the result of a long-term narrative. You always commit yourself to regionalism. Therefore, when a new regional scheme is proposed, you cannot backpedal, because you have consistently said that you're in favor. However, I would say that this approach remains interesting. It certainly explains something, but it's more descriptive than anything else. 
And finally, this is where I left my thinking on regionalism before embarking of, on this idea of modular regionalism. Last year, Andres Malamud and I discussed this idea that Latin American regionalism has reached a peak. We're not saying that now Latin American regionalism is going down, because this is contrary to, to evidence. But regionalism has gone up, 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 has reached a peak, and now it's basically flat. Okay? You can add more schemes, you can add more projects, but basically that's the peak. You're not deepening much more, and in fact you're not enlarging much more. You're just adding up. Or as the former uh, Argentine foreign minister Andres Isnaios put it, you just pile up schemes after schemes. The idea here is that, okay, this is all very good, so what conclusion do we draw? Economic integration is either bilateral or geographically diffused. Doesn't have to be regional. You can have integration between a country in Asia and a country in Latin America, between the US and Europe, if we will ever get there. So here we are, and now let me tell you something. All these approaches, you can combine them together and come up with, with this modular theory of regionalism, that's fine. Reality is complex, you need complex explanation. But still, I wonder, is it possible to devise a tool to capture this whole thing and explain it with one platform, with one concept, with one framework? And here is my proposal. And this is the part for the last 10 minutes where I would really, really appreciate your comments during the discussion. Well, the idea is, I happened to look at a small booklet, something like that, no more than 55, 60 pages, by Richard Feinberg and Delia Boylan, who discussed the, the context of multilateralism in the early 1990s and tried to devise a framework that could be a valid theoretical and practical framework, policy-oriented framework. And they come up with this idea of modular regionalism. Now, look at the context they saw in the 1990s, early 1990s. We're talking about between 1990 and 1991. Strong ties between countries. Does it apply to Latin America? Yes, perfectly. US declining economic position? Yes, that's what you can perceive an increasingly varied set of issues that need to be discussed and tackled at the regional level or at the international level? Yes, take. An upsurge and variety of non-state actors? Yes, indeed. Don't think that non-state actors are only incorporated in the more radical or left-leaning projects, such as ALBA. Because, for instance, the Pacific Alliance is now also trying to incorporate the Mercado Integrado Latinoamericano, the merge of the stock exchanges, which is the result of a push from the bottom. Basically, the operators, the stock exchange operators, wanted to integrate their market. This was not a governmental exercise. Finally, disparity in power and level of development among countries, yes, plenty of that in Latin America. So, thank that concept, in my view, is applicable to Latin America. And that framework, both theoretical and applied, is good to explain cooperation, 
based on common ground. And in spite of the fact that you can achieve cooperation, the model does not ignore complexity. I'll go deeper into the idea. First of all, why can we apply this to Latin American regionalism? Well, because the key characteristics are quite similar, but also because regionalism can be understood as a form of multilateralism. So the leap is not without any safety net. It's credible and it's feasible. Modular regionalism has two characteristics. It is certainly multilateral, because we have many players coming to the table at the same time. And it's also modular, in that actors at the table at any one time will shift according to the issue at end, or in our case, for the sake of Latin American regionalism, according to the project we are observing. And there are three interesting characteristics that define this approach, the modular approach. The first is that diversity among participants is assumed. So it's taken for granted. We accept that participants do not have the same power, do not have the same level of development, do not have the same interest. There is a need for specific modules. So if ALBA is tailored around someone's needs, that's okay. Maybe other countries have different needs, say the countries belonging to the Pacific Alliance. And there are strategies to redress these disparities. That's the case with FOSEM, the fund available within Mercosur to help the least developed countries. That's the principle underpinning ALBA too. So quite different schemes have similar ideas. Still with me? <laughs> Thank you. Almost there. And now, here is perhaps one of the most interesting parts that defines Latin American regionalism today. If you apply this modular framework, this modular approach, you have a number of advantages. You know about the functions of theory. Theory can be descriptive, can be analytical, can be predictive, can be prescriptive. Well, this approach has the advantage that, in fact, combines all these. And it quite works, it seems to me. First of all, if you look at the descriptive dimension, well, we have described this for the last 40 minutes, 45 minutes. So I think we can agree on that. And if you think just in terms of multiple actors, think of the role of non-state actors within ALBA, quite leftist, certainly not neoliberal, and within the Pacific Alliance. Quite rightist, if I may, or right-leaning, and quite neoliberal. So there is this mix and this diversity of actors that is recognized. And there is space also to acknowledge the role of external actors. What about the analytical framework? Well, the modular approach helps us capture the six key features, because this idea of a modular regionalism allows each of the six points, the six points of focus, actually to be comprised in this model. If you look at the predictive part, that's quite interesting, I think, because for the shorter term, the prediction is right. It has already happened. Focused is on issue-based discussion, which seems really to be the case. Coalitions are formed among like-minded states. Fake. That works. 
And the first issues to be tackled are the so-called win-win issues, where nobody has anything to lose. Think of the topic of infrastructure within UNASUR. Whether you have a left-leaning government or a right-leaning government, you're interested in infrastructure. That's a win-win cooperation situation. Where I'm not so sure that the model may work is in the longer term. Why? Because the prediction of this model for the longer term are three quite contested and debatable predictions. The first is that more cooperation will follow. I'm not quite sure we see more cooperation. We see more examples of it, but not more of the thing, to be honest. The second prediction is convergence of development strategies. I don't see that at all. As I've said, there is, on the contrary, divergence. So I think the model has its limit in this part. And finally, uh, there is an expectation that all these schemes will come up with deeper institutions, more developed institutions. And I cannot see that either, at least for the time being. Finally, the prescriptive dimension. I think this is quite good because it tells us what should happen for the model to work and for Latin American regionalism to work a bit better? There is a consensus that it hasn't worked as well as it could have, although you might have your views on that. And what does this model uh, prescribe? Well, highly specific modules, we are getting there. The creation of ad hoc secretariats and coordination mechanisms and again, we are getting there. If you want, I can expand during the Q&As, but we're definitely getting there. Creative approaches to problem solving. I think we are getting there. Think of one example only. With all these projects, think of the money, waste of money, waste of time, waste of energy for all the summits. The Pacific Alliance sought that out by holding virtual summits. They all sit around the table, video conference, problem sorted. That's quite creative, I feel. Fourth point is the need for leadership, which is one of the big issues on the table in Latin America. The idea, number five, of nations speaking with one spokesperson, that's what happened with CELAC. At the, at the summit last year, CELAC produced one declaration that represented the will of all the states and was announced to the press and to the European partners by the president of Chile. And then there is finally the principle of differential treatment, different treatment. Different countries need different treatment. The case of Fossem for Mercosur and the principle in Alba. So, to conclude, five tentative conclusions. The first, the current proliferation did not happen by chance. It is the result of the existing diversity of interest of different Latin American countries. Second, in the absence of the minimum conditions for a proper convergence of policy, probably modular regionalism is the best option one can hope for. I wouldn't see that as a negative development necessarily. Cooperation is more malleable than integration. That's why perhaps countries favor this approach rather than traditional integration. There are still challenges in terms of cost, effectiveness, 
and the idea do we have state policies or do we have government policies the idea is what will happen with Alba when the Chavez effect will fade and it will fade at some point it's, it's natural and finally a problem with definition so what do we make of regional integration regionalism how do we define all this if the picture has become so complex and I don't think it's an easy answer but it's something we should think about and by final point I will not give any answer this is just a question for reflection <laughs> I'll go back to cinema <laughs> do you know the leopard an Italian film well, someone may, someone may not. <laughs> anyway, this film and the novel from which the film was taken became famous for one big statement. That is, everything must change so that everything stays the same. And my question is, with all this boring chat of about an hour, all this different model, all this different thing, what is really new? in Latin American regionalism of the last 10 years as compared to the past? I have my answers, but I don't want to disclose them now, and I would rather take this up during the Q&A. Thank you very much for your patience and interest. <laughs>